Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, episode 51. I'm Tian and Dieb, and like the Brexit bill, the burger I had earlier today has passed through my body without any amendments, and now, in a similar way, shit is serious. Yes, I've started with a poo joke again. That's where we are, people. Poo jokes at the top of the show. Yes, the bill to trigger Article 50 is go, as MPs told the Lords the entire past two weeks of their nearly over lives with a sort of waste of time most of them will never get back. Then the Lords agreed, hoping it means they won't have to go into a home, and then MPs voted against them having a meaningful vote on the Brexit outcome. Yes, the more sovereign state that people voted for have voted for a less sovereign state, because hey, sometimes there's just too much democracy, right? So that's it, the way is paved for the triggering of Article 50, and the person who did the paving was probably an EU citizen who now doesn't know if they can stay or not. SNP leader, First Minister for Scotland and stunt double for Chucky, Nicola Sturgeon, has said that she will be seeking a second independence referendum for Scotland. I'm guessing she has to seek it because she lost the last one. Sturgeon has said that Brexit made change inevitable, but Scotland can still decide the nature of that change. There's a high possibility that that change will be a handful of European cents. Prime Minister and only human being in the world with the sort of eyes you only see on people who are about to turn into zombies, Theresa May, told Nicola Sturgeon that politics is not a game. That's fair, because if it was a game, we could all go back to an earlier save from some point, probably around, I don't know, 2007, and reload from then. Meanwhile, Labour leader and 2016 Scruffs finalist Jeremy Corbyn said that he did back a second Scottish independence referendum, then that he didn't, and that the media said that he did, and then that Labour would oppose it at Holyrood, but not if it got to Westminster, because for Labour, Scotland is a bit like going past the home you used to live in and realising that they don't even get your unredirected post anymore. The latest Ipso Mori poll suggests that whereas the previous referendum in 2014 was 55% to stay in Britain, 45% to leave, opinions are now dead on 50-50. Personally, I don't see why Scotland shouldn't go, considering none of the powers they were promised after the last one were given to them, and the majority of Scots wanted to stay in the EU. Also, if they go, the United Kingdom might have to be known as the formerly United Kingdom, and that'd mean UKIP would have to become fuck-up, which is totally worth it. Meanwhile, Philip Hammond announced in his first budget as Chancellor of the Exchequer that the economy is expected to grow more than was predicted in 2017. I bet Philip Hammond tells everyone he has an amazing garden because there's two blades of grass eking through a pile of toxic waste he found by the canal. 
Otherwise, Hammond's budget was lacking in content, both in his shit jokes about labour and much financial substance, not including anything about the environmental investments or housing and instead mainly breaking the Conservative manifesto promise of not increasing national insurance. It was only for self-employed people, which means it largely affects white van drivers and comedians, but unless the Tories row back on it, that's the Houses of Parliament's repairs fucked and I'm certainly not giving Phil any tips on how to make his shitty gags about labour any better. Corbyn's so far down a black hole, even Stephen Hawkins has disowned him, was one of them. I mean, how does that even make sense? If Jezza was down a black hole, I reckon Stephen Hawkins would be fascinated by what he was doing, and Corbyn would definitely be helping progress science more than the half-hearted budget promises Hammond made. Lord Michael Hesstine was fired as a government advisor because he backed demands for a meaningful vote on the final Brexit deal. Or it could be because when he strangled his mother's dog, he didn't give the fur to Theresa May for her coat. But who knows? Either way, it's yet another sign that Brexit means shut up, just shut up, because it's really hard to throw ourselves off a cliff if you keep interrupted with your but-we-might-get-hurt-in-the-face comments. MPs voted against reinstating the Dubs Amendment for the UK to save 3,000 unaccompanied child refugees by 287 MPs against 267. A horrible decision, and I can only assume there's obviously something that concerns many Conservative MPs about being associated with lots of unaccompanied young children. In America, radioactive EDAM President Donald Trump tweeted support for International Women's Day by saying he has tremendous respect for women and the many roles they serve that are vital to the fabric of our society and our economy. Judging by the comments he's made previously about women, I assume those roles are pussy grabby, news bimbo, disgusting breastfeeder, piece of ass and daughter slash lover. Oh, and a big congrats to food blogger, chef and campaigner Jack Monroe, who successfully sued Katie Hopkins, a woman who is essentially skin-wrapped around the Daily Mail comment section. Hopkins was sued for libel for tweets about Monroe, and while I hope this causes everyone that Hopkins has ever said shit about to sue her, I'm also aware that court space needs to be left for other cases. So, uh, hello you, um, thanks always for listening. It is a short episode this week, partly to make up for the fact that last week's was so very long because, well, the news, and partly because I'm currently on the road doing shows and uh, I'm recording this under my duvet in my hotel room, which is pretty warm. Uh, and let me tell you as well that generally service stations aren't the best place to be writing political jokes, even if it's T-Bay, which is the best services in the world. And I've recently stopped the car to see a Shetland pony that had hair like Pat Sharp during his funhouse years. Um, thank you to any of you who came to the lovely, lovely previews I did with Beckhill in Sheffield and Glasgow. Uh, we had properly great crowds in for both. And extra points to Sheffield for being happy to move the entire show to a different room midway uh, because of a professional con artist heckling me and then keeling over. Yes, uh, really. And yes, there is more to that story. So if you ask me, when you see me, I'll tell you all about it. Sometimes people are weird. Uh, thank you also to John, who bought me a coffee via the Kofi account uh, for a specific joke on last week's show, which is a really nice way to do it, by the way. Um, if you don't want to support this show monthly via the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash parpolbro, which is hugely helpful and allows me to try not to book gigs on Sundays or Mondays so I can actually make the show the proper length, uh, then you could go to the Kofi account, which John emailed me to say you can find by typing parpolbro, Kofi, that's K-O-F-I, into Google, um, and it should be in the top result. So just chuck me a few quid every time uh, there's a gag on the show that really tickles you or an interview you particularly like. Um, of course, the danger is, of course, that the gag rate will get so high that before long you'll all be in constant laughing hysterics and broke. What do you mean that's incredibly unlikely to happen? So mean. So, so mean. 
Apart from that and uh, the usual please review this show nonsense please because please actually do and no one has for ages and it only takes two minutes and you can do it on Stitcher as well as iTunes. Apart from all that I just wanted to let you know that if you go to Facebook and search for Stand Up For Refugees that's the number four uh, you'll find a page listing all the gigs myself and Jen Brister have organised to raise money for the Amazing Help Refugees charity uh, which is now even more needed now that the Dubs Amendment hasn't been reinstated. Um, all the gigs have got amazing lineups, so if you can come along please please do. Oh and thank you to everyone who mentioned this podcast in their tripod tweets uh, if you fancy recommending us as part of this uh, podcast audience boosting initiative just tweet about why you like this show and use the hashtag uh, tripod that's t-r-y pod um, it would be very much appreciated um, my part of that is I will recommend you uh, throughout March some podcasts that I also love uh, this week I recommend Smirsh Pod that's s-m-e-r-s-h pod uh, which is a lovely podcast talking about James Bond films by people who often aren't that really really that bothered about James Bond films which makes it much more fun um, there's Stop and Search which is a fantastic monthly panel podcast about drugs policy in the UK and abroad and there is the brilliant brilliant one of my favourites Beef and Dairy Network podcast uh, which has amazing uh, the day to day esque humour always always makes me laugh out loud when I'm surrounded by people who think I've completely lost it uh, to be fair shouldn't be listening to it while in the public gallery at court hearings uh, so, uh, tripod that lot. Uh, hashtag tripod, do give us a shout. Um, right, this week, there's no Trump. Brexit can sod off till next week properly. And I know it's the Dutch elections this week, but I'm going to look at them at next week when it's all over rather than make predictions and be more wrong than Mystic Meg predicting her career's future. So instead, it's all budget as I chat with Fran Bowett from the Positive Money campaign and there's a few headlines, including these ones. <laughs> Turkey is currently involved in a bit of a spat with several European countries, including the Netherlands and Germany, with authoritarian chipmunk President Erdogan accusing them of Nazism because they've blocked rallies. Yeah, I'm sure you'll remember that Hitler was, you know, really big on stopping rallies from happening. That was a total Nazi thing. No rallies under Hitler's watch. Nuh-uh, never. I mean, that whole Nazi thing was all organised with quietly embroidered notes passed from house to house. The rallies Erdogan wants to organise in these countries are to encourage Turkish citizens living abroad to vote in a referendum to give him even more power than he already has in his authoritarian president position. Yeah, how a hungry man would like more power. I mean, sounds fine, right? I mean, it's not like every adventure film you've ever seen has warned against this sort of thing, and Erdogan's referendum is like a long-drawn-out speech before the villain opens up a casket and his face melts or anything. France let one of these rallies happen and about 800 Turkish people turned up in Metz with little issue. But the German interior minister said that the rallies have no place in their country. Probably, you know, because they've seen those sort of rallies asking for more power before. And Sweden blocked one in Stockholm as well. So now Erdogan awaits the Netherlands response, which currently seems to be to tell its citizens to not go to Turkey. Amazingly, Dutch populist election candidate and, well, racist Hurt Wilders said that Turkish people waving Turkish flags in the Netherlands have shown where their loyalties lay. Yes, Erdogan's populist rallies infringe on the populist stances of other populists. Who'd have thought it? It's not popular with other populists. So the glimmer of hope as the world moves to the far right is that if all the authoritarian populists move to their right, they'll all crash into each other and we can get on with fixing everything. Either that or, fingers crossed, Erdogan's face melts sometime soon. In what you'd assume would be constant headlines everywhere, the UN have said that the world is facing its largest humanitarian crisis since 1945. Yes, that's the year the Second World War ended, but you'd be wrong for thinking that means it's not much of a crisis and it's just a sort of big old party that everything's all right. Actually, it's a huge crisis. It's very, very serious too. More than 20 million people face the threat of starvation across Yemen, Somalia, South Sudan and Nigeria. It's to do with conflict blocking aid, fuel shortages stopping deliveries, poor governance, extremists, pirates and because you ate all the pies. 
well, okay, not the last one. And really, this is such a horrific situation that jokes about it just make me sad. But the UN humanitarian chief has said that 4.4 billion US dollars in aid would be needed by July in order to avoid 1.4 million children starving to death. Currently, only $90 million has been received, so they are a long, long way off. And with Trump aiming to cut UN funding, it might hinder any attempts to save those kids. The UK could also help by not selling weapons to Saudi Arabia that are used in Yemen, prolonging the conflict. But, you know, more likely it'll just be ignored because those countries are far away and we'll just have to put up with seeing Bob Geldof on the TV again, making everything much worse. Go to the UNICEF website for more info on it all and how you can help and generally just make people aware of it if you can. It's absolutely bonkers. This isn't headlines all the time. Uh, I'll hopefully cover this all in more detail in weeks to come. But seriously, I mean, if you didn't eat all the pies, it probably would help, mate. For the past few years, the budget has generally been an hour of a man in a suit who looked like a robot who just realised it has the capacity to kill, reeling off a ton of numbers that, while sounding boring, essentially meant everyone except him and some friends would be fairly poor for a while. Luckily, last year we had a change of government, and by that I mean people from the same party we didn't like got to be in charge after no one elected them, and now the budget is an hour of a man who looks like he sold all his joy to the devil in order to forever be camouflaged, if in a morgue, telling you some numbers that sound boring but still mean we're all screwed. What was in it this year? Well, not much. I mean, it was half the length of the previous budget, at only 68 pages long. And it included £2 billion going to social care, which would be great, but social care actually needs £2.6 billion to survive the crisis it's currently in. Then there was £100 million towards triage in NHS A&E department costs, which is sort of helpful, but again, nowhere near enough to address the crisis the NHS is in. If anything, money for triage is like literally paying for a plaster and some stitches to barely cover all the cuts the NHS has suffered as it quickly bleeds to death. There was some decent money to science, which will almost make up for a teeny bit of the investment it's going to lose from the EU when we Brexit. And Hammond also raised national insurance for self-employed people, which makes some sense as they now get the same state pension as employed people, but less sense as they don't get paternity or maternity pay or a ton of other benefits. And as self-employed status has increased, as shit companies like Uber used it in the gig economy to get around having to pay holiday or sick pay until a court said they had to. And there was nothing in there to help the housing crisis, no investments in environmental policies and no real mentions of Brexit, even though it'll affect everything. And the Institute of Fiscal Studies have said that with all the benefit cuts combining with Brexit, that wages won't return to 2007 levels till 2022 at the earliest. By which point it'll probably fit in with the retro club night students will be going to if there are any students because tuition fees will be stupid. So that's an overview, but this week I spoke to Fran Bowett from Positive Money. While they sound like they could be a group of people who scribble on £5 notes so it looks like the Queen is giving a thumbs up, Positive Money are actually a campaign movement for a banking system that actually works for society. They look at how things have been pretty awful for the average earner since the global financial crash and have progressive and viable ideas on how to change the UK economy so it works for the better. Fran very kindly gave me a positive penny for my thoughts and took time to explain to me what this budget meant and more importantly what it should have included in order to actually make the UK financial system have currency for everyone. Here's Fran. So uh, the budget yesterday was about half the length of the previous year's budget. Um, and there's been a lot of news today now that the Conservatives have gone back on manifesto promises. Um, how do you feel it was as a budget? Was it lacking? Was it incredibly efficient? What What are your initial thoughts on it? Well, thanks for having me on, first of all. Um, yeah, I think the budget was unfortunately um, lacking. It didn't give us any uh, direction that we need in terms of boosting incomes, jobs uh, and employment uh, and very much was a kind of continuation. So the budget is um, 
happens twice a year and it's usually this kind of uh funfair and a little bit of a media storm around like you know what are the, what's the kind of latest exciting tax that the treasuries come up with but i think you know now in the economic situation that the country is in um brexit's happened we've got high levels of inflation there's a lot of uncertainty in the economy uh then you know we're really expecting a bit more from from the government from the chancellor and the prime minister uh, since they kind of took over post brexit they've been um making quite a few statements that suggest they do understand the kind of seriousness of how uh, the economy is in a really bad situation they've talked about inequality they've talked about housing um and they've talked about change but the budget that came yesterday was unfortunately um not really delivering much and as you say it was quite short perhaps because they wanted it to get it over and and done with as quickly as possible um and it's basically a continuation so austerity is very clearly back we've got a lot of cuts happening to uh, vital public services and public spending um and you know that's really damaging but i think uh one of the other policy economic policies that's happening that you know doesn't get so much mention is that at the same time the the chancellor's overseeing these really damaging cuts it's also giving permission for the bank of england to be creating money through a program called quantitative easing and the bank is create has created about 70 billion pounds and that's being used to flood financial markets um boosting stock prices and generally making the rich richer but doing very little for ordinary people so we're continuing with this toxic mix which is tight fiscal policy so cuts to vital public spending and uh, loose monetary policy where we're allowing basically the bank of england to keep financial markets pumped up and this is going to you know hurt the the people struggling in in inequality um so just looking at the bigger picture uh i guess you could say from the budget that you know the house is on fire but they're painting the door right okay <laughs> that's a that's a very good way to look at it um and i think you know as you said that there was there's cuts and austerity have come back i mean is that at all necessary um because i thought for a while they were talking about growth going up and uh you know that we'd kind of we're, things were getting better um but then uh, we've had a number of kind of funding cuts come through um and increases i mean i, I mean i think there were a number of people that are definitely going to be affected by this year's budget right yeah definitely i mean absolutely they're not necessary um even you know the imf the international monetary fund which is not known for its kind of um more progressive economic policy is saying that you know austerity is probably not the way we should be going so public spending shouldn't be cut especially for those on the lowest incomes um but we're seeing you know benefit cuts of over 12 billion and just to put that in perspective some really good um, analysis by the resolution foundation have been pointing out that the the next four years is predicted to be uh, worse for the bottom third than the financial crisis uh, and also that we're kind of looking at the worst decade uh, for pay growth in 210 years so you know it really is the case that we're in a pretty grave situation in terms of um people at the bottom struggling and the rich getting richer through economic policy and what happened yesterday was was absolutely kind of continuation of that and no real change so you know 
it's all very well that the, the government's starting to recognise that they, there is more systemic problems, but they're not putting any of that into action. And, and, and right now it's, you know, the people that are struggling the most that will suffer the most. Why do you think there was such a focus on uh, self-employed people? Because as as a self-employed person myself, I suppose it's always the way, isn't it? You you take offence at the things that are targeted towards you. But I I did sort of think that it kind of ignored the fact that if you're self-employed, you don't have sick pay, you don't have holiday pay, um, and there are reasons that perhaps your tax is less. I mean, do you think that the budget was kind of un, unfair towards self-employed, and was it was it perhaps still unfairly biased towards companies and corporations with with cuts to tax towards those? I mean, yeah, if you look at the uh, the headlines today, all of all the newspapers are, are kind of highlighting the the uh, national insurance on self-employed people. I mean, I haven't looked into it in detail, but the, the graphs I have show have seen is that it does look like it's it is progressive in that the tax is meant to tax um you know very wealthy people that are self-employed a lot more and it shouldn't really affect people who are you know in the middle and lower income brackets much at all (laughs) however i guess it's kind of for me it's yeah this is the issue with the budgets i kind of alluded to basically there's there's a big fanfare and there's a lot of attention usually around very small policies that actually won't make that much difference to people's lives and there's not enough attention around the kind of bigger picture so what's really going on in our economy uh in terms of you know growing inequality stagnating wages um that kind of housing crisis that we face those things aren't usually mentioned um and i think you know, we can't just um, blanket say the national insurance on self-employed people is a is a bad policy because actually, if you look at the numbers, it's not that bad. But it is very micro; it's a minimal impact, and it's not really going to make any any big difference to, as I said, the house being on fire. Right. So, what what do you think the main? Uh, well, in fact, let's let's go for positive things first. Was there anything positive that came out of the budget yesterday? I mean, the the kind of micro, uh, the kind of micro policies, you know, are positive in terms of you know taxing uh, wealthier people a little bit more uh, to get a little bit more money into the pot. Um, but as I said, most of these are very small. They're not really uh, doing what actually needs to be done. You know what what the kind of country's crying out for, if you were through, you know, increased kind of discontent, um, which, you know, in one form uh, it was exposed in the Brexit vote last year. So I guess our, you know, our analysis is like, you know, we can kind of analyse these very small policies, but they're all going to have a very minimal effect. And actually what, you know what we call positive money are calling for, and you know wider analysis is is more of a a kind of understanding of the of the situation we're in. And there wasn't really much, you know, much positive that came out of yesterday. Can't really point to a policy that's going to make much difference at all. Because I and and you mentioned obviously you mentioned some of the areas that were missed, uh, like housing is obviously a very important one. And uh, in in Corbyn's response, he mentioned lack of investment in environmental policies. Um, and there's been a sort of uh, I, I suppose personally, I think it's like a a token gesture towards social care, but probably not enough. <laughs> um, so is there what do you think is the most sort of damaging area that they they've missed? Yeah, I guess. Um... I guess it is this kind of continually um, 
focus on on the kind of debt and ensuring that the government continues cutting and you know that's gonna manifest in in as I kind of pointed out before, like worse uh, stagnating wages and no real stimulus to the economy. I mean, you know, I think that most people will agree that we need um, we need serious investment in housing, especially social housing. We need serious investment in green infrastructure to green our economy and create um, a good number of uh, jobs in the process. And um, we need to really seriously um, boost funding for the NHS and restructure our health and social care. Those aren't easy challenges. They're really difficult and they, you know, they require um, a lot of work and a lot of figuring out exactly how we can turn them around. But I guess the point is the budget yesterday didn't really acknowledge the scale of those problems. And actually, it, you know, if anything, kind of implied that the Chancellor and the Prime Minister are burying their heads in the sand a bit when it comes to the things that this country needs. Do you, do you think part of that is to do with Brexit and the fact that we still haven't really got a clue what that's going to entail? Exactly, yeah. I mean, they are really <laughs> um, kind of like hoping that we don't give them... I mean, part of the reason it was so short is I think they didn't want too much attention. It's a bit like, look over there. Um <laughs> While they're trying to kind of, uh, yes, like scrabble through, I guess, uh, what the hell is going on with Brexit, <laughs> with the economy, with all the uncertainty. Um, and so, yeah, they they face really big challenges and, and not to kind of, you know, envy their jobs, really. Like it is a really difficult time. Um, but seeing as they seem to kind of understand that it's really disappointing that the budget that was announced yesterday is going to really hurt the uh, you know the people on the lowest incomes and the people struggling the most. It's going to, you know, they are really, I think they will live to regret what they're doing in terms of living standards. They will, they are really not helping, um, you know, the bottom third of, of society, people who are really struggling. Um, and, yeah, in part, you could say that you know, they're sidetracked, they're worried about Brexit, but actually, you know, there's some there's some ideological decisions that are made and um, they aren't really, um, I don't think they're really considering seriously enough the repercussions of actually not, um, you know, not really addressing the inequality in this country, not really addressing people that are being... Uh, people's living standards are dropping because of benefit cuts and pay squeezes. So I think there's, yeah, I think there's a um, there's a lot of chaos happening, obviously, in, with um, Brexit, but there's also like a worrying continuation of of you know basically driving up inequality and causing a lot of people's lives to be worse off, basically. Sure, and and I mean, I guess were we to have a stable economy that was well managed, Brexit would be less terrifying anyway. Yeah, and you know, possibly it wouldn't have happened. I mean, it, I do think we can't um, we can't uh, forget that. I think a driving factor of Brexit is this kind of inequality um, in the country, and, and that can be seen through a number of lenses. Obviously, one is um, you know a, a regional divide between a lot of money being pumped into financial markets and property in London and the southeast, and a lot of the rest of the country feeling like they're being left behind. Um, there's also uh, a 
a kind of generational um, divide. Uh, and and also, you know, if, if you just simply look at um, incomes around the country, the constituencies with people on lower incomes had a higher Brexit vote. It's it's obviously not the only um, driving force. There was a lot of, uh, you know, xenophobia and, and this kind of uh, people wanting the kind of... Um, uh, to kind of go back to Britain being great again, which I think probably miss, uh, maybe misplaced hopes. But I think that a lot of the, um, you know, we can't we can't disentangle the economy from Brexit, and I think that's the issue that actually we really do need to rethink our economic policy. And you know, yesterday it just they're just doing more of the same. It's um I, I I do always wonder exactly at which point Britain was at its greatest. Uh, I'm slightly concerned by that. Yeah, <laughs> if exactly. it's when we, if well, it's when we had smallpox, or you know, I'm not sure uh, which point. Uh- Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. And now a very mini Brexit Fallout! Brexit Fallout! Brexit Fallout! Not a lot to tell this week, as if you heard last week's show with Tatton Spiller from Simple Politics, he quite clearly explained what the Article 50 bill and Great Repeal bill mean and involve. So this is merely a note that the Commons and the Lords have now agreed to allow the Article 50 bill to go through without amendments, even though, you know, the right for EU citizens uh, to be able to stay in the UK post-Brexit would have been nice, and I'd also quite like them to change the name of the bill to the A50 bill so people travelling between Nutsford and Lynn would feel important. The debate had some high points, including Nick Clegg saying that the government condemning accountability in Brussels while undermining it in the House of Commons was a sleight of hand that should never be forgotten. Damn, Clegg, where was that back in the day? I also like Caroline Lucas saying that they were not elected to be lemmings, though, like the computer game version, I guess she is very green. Then there were low points, like David Davis saying that voting for a meaningful vote on the Brexit outcome is tying the government's hands to stop the Prime Minister from walking away if offered a bad deal. No, David, it's allowing the deal that she goes in with to not just be, I want all the cake, please, so they don't tell us to get fucked, and then she walks away because it turns out Europe know how to handle two-year-olds. 
It looks like May won't trigger Article 50 until the end of March, though I'm sure that's because she's so unsure of what will happen that it was too risky doing it on the 15th. Who knows, the same sleight of hand that Clegg says undermines parliamentary sovereignty may well have several other tricks up its sleeve. Or, considering whose sleeve it is, it might just pull out a dead dove. More next week. So, to explain to someone like me, and my understanding of how economics works is very, very minimal. But why... For example, you mentioned earlier that quantitative easing has still been happening and and helping banks and helping those institutions. Apart from ideological reasons, is there any reason why that couldn't be used to help uh, sort of public services? You know, why quantitative easing couldn't go back into society? Well, exactly that, and that's what um, Positive Money is campaigning for. And we have a lot of economists um, and leading thinkers on the topic uh, that actually agree with us, including the the. Uh, chief economics commentator of the Financial Times, you know, quantitative easing might have been the um, best tool available just after the crash and the financial crisis could have got worse without it. But we're seven years on now and we've continued with this policy of essentially pumping up stock markets and um, boosting asset prices, which which makes the rich richer. Um, the idea is that that will somehow trickle down into you know where the rest of us live in the real economy, but it, it doesn't work. It simply doesn't work and no no um, economist looking at the figures can can say it does. The Bank of England itself has acknowledged that it increases inequality, and um, you know, in a way, they're in denial. Um, I think that they, you know, there's a kind of intellectual crisis in a way in, in monetary policy where they think they they don't think they have any other choices, but they clearly do, um, and. And they're just choosing not to kind of have these discussions. So um, there is a there is a kind of push from positive money and others to open up this discussion. It is as simple as the fact that you know pe- people at the Bank of England and economists might try and um, might try and say it's more complicated, but it really isn't. Like they are creating money out of nothing. They are pumping that money into financial markets. And that is making the rich richer. We are saying you could create a lot less money and that could be um, credited to the government and that could go on spending and protecting vital public services and actually helping to you know, boost people's incomes and employment. Um, there's no technical reason why that couldn't happen. It's more a kind of shift in economics, shift in um, what's been done and you know, the inertia of the status quo, I guess. I mean, and, and from what you're saying, um, is there a possibility there might be another crash then? Because it doesn't sound like they're doing anything different to what they were doing before that led to the crash in the first place. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we're relying on um, increases in household debt to kind of keep the economy afloat. Um, but that can't last forever. And, you know, the OBR, um, the Office for Budget Responsibility, came out with a budget yesterday predicting um high levels of um, private debt. It's going to you know, reach pre-crisis levels soon. Um, and uh, yeah, there's a kind of denial, I guess, that that's not a problem. Um, I think in terms of the next crash, um, I think you know, where that comes from is uncertain. Obviously, we live in a very globalised, financialized economy now. So we're very interconnected. And a lot of economists are kind of thinking that it could come from another country um there's a lot of uh, a lot of countries that are having 
and uh, dangerously high levels of, of debt and kind of driving their their economy is being fueled by you know basically um housing bubbles uh, increased um, private debt increased people taking out um credit to kind of meet their living standards and so it's you know it's like <laughs> It's certain that there will be another crisis, but when exactly it will happen or where from, then it's a, it's confusing. And also, I think um, something that isn't really talked about, but it's something that we think about a lot, is the fact that we're, we're kind of in the UK in this kind of long, drawn-out crisis where there's no kind of um, perceived crash by the media in terms of sudden, um, you know, sudden implosion of a bank but actually um living standards dropping and um increasing inequality stagnating economy it is a kind of long drawn out crisis that we're in that might not manifest in something we all perceive but in five years time if if we kind of continue down the path we're in then i think that you know we're going to just see continually increasing social discontent and um that can obviously manifest in a in a whole bunch of different and worrying ways that sounds uh terrifying yeah um and that with brexit on top as well so <laughs> who, yeah. who knows yeah it isn't easy to fix the situation no. we're in but uh, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try right sure of course and and, and just i mean onto that obviously you've mentioned some of what you're trying to do or, or campaigning for at Positive Money um, uh, in terms of uh, trying to get the government to, to fund more into public services and to quantitative easing for that. Can you can you give us a bit more of a rundown about what Positive Money's campaign is? Sure. Um, so, yeah, we were set up uh, in 2010 um, after the crash, a couple of years after the crash, um, basically to kind of highlight this um this point that's kind of disappeared from economics and knowledge and politicians' knowledge, which is how money's created. So most people don't realise, but money is created by banks when they make loans. So they create money out of nothing. If you or I go in and take out a loan, money's created right then and then, uh, and with it at the same time a debt. So banks kind of have this free ability to create um, to create vast amounts of money, and they put most of the new money into property and financial markets, hence why the UK has an economy that's skewed towards an oversized financial sector and housing bubbles. Um, and it's kind of down to the central bank or our monetary policy to oversee how the financial system works. And we've kind of seen a bit of a shift in the last um, 30 years from um, a kind of... Uh, basically the bank being happy to see an, a massive growth in the financial sector and, and money being created by banks and that obviously leading up to the crash. Uh, and since then, we've kind of seen the Bank of England and central banks looking more into a kind of moving into kind of risk management. So how can we stop a crisis being too bad? And we're kind of interested in and basically trying to democratise monetary policy. You know, we see it as one of the key um, reasons that we have a dysfunctional economy and we think it needs to be reformed. So the current um, focus is the fact that QE is happening and it needs to be reformed because it's a policy that makes the rich richer and does very little for anyone else. And we 
it's quite an exciting time because the Treasury Select Committee, which is a group of MPs, they get to scrutinise the Bank of England and the Treasury, are currently doing a inquiry into monetary policy. So we are um, we've submitted our evidence, but we've also got a uh, su- surprisingly there's a lot of people, a lot of people, uh, members of the public in this country that are that want to get active and want to campaign on this stuff. So we've got over. 30,000 supporters and they they kind of organize in local groups across the country and we got 10,000 of them to sign a statement which have, has gone to this group of MPs the Treasury Select Committee and quite a few of them have met with their with their MPs if they're MPs on the committee so we so we're kind of organizing to to show um, politicians that you know we're not going to be quiet I think part of the reason things are so bad is that you know, the way economic policy is talked about is so full of jargon that that people, you know, like myself previously felt like we, we couldn't really have a say in it unless we were an expert. So we're really interested in how we can kind of democratise the debate. And um, and our current focus is on QE and its problems and and how we can uh, reform it. I think, you know, it's a, it, don't get me wrong, it, it's, it's a long game, like it's not going to happen overnight. But I think with the num- numbers of people um, growing and the the kind of um, greater the, the kind of urgency of the situation, we are seeing more and more both members of the public, but also economists, politicians, um, journalists, realising that we do need to question the the, the way that the economic policy is done and that that requires kind of getting stuck into the debate that is it's fantastic that so many people are getting involved and and i think like as you said it's something that uh i, I try and keep very active uh in my awareness of politics but it, economics is one thing that generally makes me very confused on a regular basis um for, for example watching the budget this week uh with the the nic's and the and, and all of that just uh baffled me um and i think it can be quite intimidating for a lot of people absolutely totally agree and that's i think that's one of the biggest problems we face is that it is intimidating um and so you know we do need kind of people need courage to get stuck in but also we need to kind of force the debate to to get to to open up because otherwise the kind of gatekeepers in the bank of england would you know love and and the uh, the government to an extent would love nothing more to than kind of be not scrutinised. So I think it's up to us to kind of continually um, say, you know, we're watching you and we know what you're doing isn't working for us. <laughs> Brilliant. And 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 how can uh, if the listeners to the show want to get involved? Uh, you said that you have lots of local groups um, in areas all over the UK. What's what's the best way for people to get involved in Positive Money's campaign? Great. Well, yeah, the easiest way is to go on our website, positivemoney.org, and sign up, uh, and you'll get some newsletters. And if you enter your postcode, you'll hear about any event that's happening in your local area. Um, but if that's too much of a commitment, then Facebook, go on Facebook and like us, or Twitter, Positive Money UK, and kind of uh, get you know get a little taster for what we're talking about and you know what we're trying to achieve together. Because you know, it really is the case that people power can work. It, uh, Maybe it won't happen overnight, but if we if we kind of come together and can sustain momentum over a period of time, then then things do shift. And we've witnessed a big shift in the debate over the last um, six or so years that we've been running. And, and I think that, you know, change is coming. 
Brilliant, brilliant, and and just um just as a kind of a, a side note as well as apart from uh, positive money, which I, I do find, and I've looked over your website many times, I find it very clear, which is brilliant. Um, are there any other sort of groups or commentators that you could recommend uh, people follow or or look at for kind of clear information on what's going on? Is there anyone that you particularly uh, like or would recommend the advice of? Sure, I mean I think it's like we talked about that the issue is is the um kind of impenetrable quite often the the debate um so it kind of depends where you want to start the new economics foundation um is great and it has some excellent reports but it also has a great podcast which people can find on soundcloud so i'd highly recommend new economics foundation yes, it's what i heard you on only only a few months ago it was oh brilliant. great yeah, yeah <laughs> they, they give some really great analysis and um i think the if your followers are Twitterers, the Resolution Foundation um, is a bit more maybe intense with its um, graphs and numbers, but it does have a very clear analysis of, of what's going on. So so those might be two starters. Um, but I think, you know, we need more um, more people talking about this stuff in a kind of easy to easy and accessible way um oh there's one other actually economy um but without the o's so i don't know how you say that right (laughs) okay uh they're interesting they're they're basically really trying to democratize um economic chat so i'd recommend looking them up as well okay so economy without economy economy i don't know (laughs) i think they're trying to be cool (laughs) but it's definitely worked it's so cool i can't i can't say it i can't work out how to say it Thanks so much to Fran for talking to me. Uh, you can find Positive Money at positivemoney.org, their Twitter at Positive Money UK, or their Positive Money Facebook page. Do get involved, sign their statement telling the government to acknowledge the unfair impacts of their economic policies, sign up to their overall campaign, and do check out if there are local groups near you. Fran also has her own account on Twitter at Fran Boet, so that's B O A I T, so do follow her there as well. And as always, if you have someone you'd like me to interview or a subject you'd like me to interview someone about, whether it be a global issue, a national issue, or even just a tissue, bless you, then do drop me a line at Parpol Bro on Twitter, the Parpol Bro group on Facebook, partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com, or just put 12 ridges in the left side of a wax cylinder and play it to me through a phonograph as I walk past. That's it for this week's Partly Political Broadcast. The show will be normal length again next week, uh, whatever that is. I mean, do you prefer them shorter or more like an hour or so? Or would you prefer if I somehow podcast outside the concept of time so they last for both eternity and don't exist all at once? Let me know at the usual addresses I've mentioned a matter of mere seconds ago or constantly depending on your time-travelling abilities. Thanks, as always, for listening, and please do give us a review on iTunes, send me all your money at the Patreon or Kofi accounts, and please do salute every time you see a lone magpie or they'll gang up and hunt us all down for not respecting their authority as chief wing commanders. See you next week, bye! This week's show was brought to you by a very low number, although it'll be slightly higher if you're self-employed. Please do cough up. Oh, that was that was rubbish, wasn't it? I mean, and, and I'm under a duvet, and it's so warm. So, so warm. Proper episode next week. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? 
Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.